is Your Working Life, a show that provides you with tools, inspiration, and resources so you can enjoy your career and love your life. I'm Caroline Dowd-Higgins. I'm a career and executive coach, and today I welcome Marta Moakley to the show. Marta is going to talk about a very timely topic of addressing and preventing sexual harassment in the workplace. Marta, welcome to the show. Well, thank you so much for having me, Caroline. You know, this is such a hot topic and a really important time for all of us to be more aware, understand what our resources are, and really engage everyone in the workplace in this conversation. It, it's not just about them and us, it's about all of us together. So you have such a vast area of expertise, and I want to start right off the bat talking about why is supervisory training, leadership training, management training so important in this crisis? It, it is actually crucial because supervisors represent the organization. They are the frontline responders to workplace issues, whether they be sexual harassment or bullying or safety or wage and hour concerns. And they really make the difference from um, everything running smoothly to there being a real compliance risk and, and planting the seeds for a successful court claim on the part of an employee. Uh, lower level supervisors, when, when you think about them, they don't tend to have law degrees. Most of us don't. Um, they may have excellent particular, particularized knowledge about what they do day to day, but they may not have those management or employee relations skills. They're really crucial in responding to sensitive workplace issues like a sexual harassment complaint. And, and these are really required for them to be competent and to handle a situation well. So training for new supervisors in particular can be extremely important. Um, and, and training modules such as conflict resolution, basic employment, labor law compliance, and what their roles or responsibilities are within an organization can really propel them and, and make them function well within an organization and develop their careers, just get them off on the right foot. For seasoned supervisors, of course, it's essential to emphasize business goals and objectives, what a company really holds dear, what is really important to the culture of that organization. And of course, refreshers on developments um, in, in certain areas, such as sexual harassment, uh, complaint filings. What happened within a particular case, what decisions were made, what actions were taken or not taken by supervisors within uh, something that's going on in the media, that can really be powerful examples to share with supervisors on an ongoing basis. Now, I want to mention to our, our global listening audience that Marta Moakley is a legal editor at Expert HR, focusing on various employee management and HR management topics. Marta, knowing what's happening in the world today, are there certain areas that are bubbling up to the top that are critical that you're seeing from your particular lens of, of the HR world? Are you hearing more uh, about sexual harassment, for example, now that it's so timely in the news? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It, I, I will give a somewhat lawyerly answer in that it really does depend on the organization yeah. and the jurisdictions in which an employer operates. 
an, an organization really has to explore in an honest and forthright manner what specific training components and modules will really propel it forward um, and keep it compliant and really streamline, make, make streamlined decisions about what to offer employees. Um, otherwise, em employees and supervisors may be overwhelmed and they may fall into that trap of being a jack of all trades but a master of none, mm. just have a superficial understanding. That, that type of approach to training, again, won't really internalize those important concepts that we want employers and supervisors to have so that they can develop in their own careers. So, um, it, in in certain, I, I'll just be honest. I operate out of New Jersey, mm -hmm. and for, in New Jersey, we we have experienced a paid sick leave law trend at the municipal level, which has resulted in varying requirements for employers that operate within the state, in the tri-state tri area, and of course nationally and globally. So these supervisors need to understand that employees will have certain rights to ask for sick time off, to be paid for it. Some jurisdictions have actually expanded those very particular laws and include safe time. So an employee who has been the victim of a domestic violence incident or a sexual assault, they have actually added protections as well. Now, um, on a global level, um, multinational jurisdictions, big corporations may want to emphasize ethics compliance training or anti-bribery training. Just having an overall view of, of their decision-making every day to be the most ethical, the most moral that it can be. Because while we talk about different jurisdictions, of course, those are only laws that are legislated, but there tends to be um, a higher goal for, for a corporation that may or may not be mandated. But again, that's something that is speaks to the organization's values. And um, it can be housed in a code of conduct or um, handbook policies and procedures that should also be communicated to employees. Uh, for those industries, um, for example, manufacturing, transportation, food service, they may also have particularized requirements uh, that they may want to include in, in what areas uh, should be uh, taught. Um, I do want to mention that it's not only important to talk about what specific modules or content should be part of training for employees and supervisors, but also, again, how the, these concept, concepts are communicated to the employees. So training that is interactive that draws on particular experiences will be more valued than long, a long series of videos, for example, or a checklist that's sent over email. Having said that, if that's what the resources allow an organization to do, then by all means, something is better than nothing. Yeah. But I think how something is communicated is just as important as what is communicated. So I'm, I'm so grateful that you mentioned that because clearly the, the goal is to prevent sexual harassment in the workplace. And based on what you said, I'm, I'm uh, connecting dots that awareness is essential. Some people aren't even aware that their behavior is inappropriate. Clearly mm -hmm. training is helpful. Are there other measures that organizations need to take in order to prevent, for example, uh, encouraging those who have experienced it to come forward? 
Absolutely. I, I think, um, again, when, when we're just talking about lean compliance requirements, an organization may have a requirement to offer training to certain supervisors every two years. That is really not going to prevent sexual harassment in an organization or address it. Um, or protect employees from retaliation if they do come forward. Um, there are some really interesting innovations uh, in this area right now. Um, when, when I first started my legal career, really all that we would focus on is the definition of harassment, what federal laws apply, um, and the quid pro quo notion of sexual harassment. In, in recent months, I, I've really been gratified to see a rise in unconscious bias training yes, yes. where supervisors really delve deeply to see all of us are different. All of us have biases. You know, everyone has different experiences. How we interact with others and work situations, um, whether external or internal, it's, it's very important to just be conscious. Of, of what our limitations are and how we interact with the world. Um, bystander training is something the EOC has also talked about um, in terms of just empowering coworkers and peers and fellow employees that may not have that added supervisor training available to them to be empowered to come forward and, and communicate what they are seeing. Uh, boundary training I've also um, explored in terms of, you know, it, it doesn't need to get uh, to the level of being unlawful um, for it to be uncomfortable or, or just not advisable in a professional setting. So, so that awareness of just having boundaries is very, very important. But again, it goes to the culture of, of an organization, you know, is, is someone who is engaging in bad behavior allowed to thrive? while others are being silenced or, or pushed out of an industry altogether. You know, those, those are things that really has to be a systemic awareness and, and commitment to providing a fair and just and, and welcoming atmosphere in the I'm workplace. Particularly, I'm particularly encouraged about the boundaries training. That's wonderful mm -hmm. because as, as you just shared, you know, some people have uh, more comfort or confidence in, in sharing when something inappropriate is happening and others don't. And I think being able to define what those boundaries are are good for everybody. So that's wonderful. Marta, let's talk a little bit about supervisors because it's an interesting time. We're seeing so many states now legalizing marijuana. So has that impacted the drug-free workplace differently? And what do we need to know? It, it's, it's an interesting time for supervisors and for employers as well to really uh, talk about and think about uh, how they want to approach the use of drugs by employees. And of course, it doesn't um, necessarily have to do with on-duty use, but off-duty conduct as well, and how an employer wants to approach this. And I will tell you, it has a lot to do with each employer's risk tolerance, whether they, how they want to approach this. A number of organizations don't have drug-free workplace policies, and they don't offer workplace uh, drug-free workplace training. And that is because um, many don't need to. Uh, you generally are required if you are a federal contractor, for example, um, but you may not have to otherwise. But the reason that it's important 
to offer uh, these drug-free uh, workplace training, hopefully training that is um, it's, it's provided in conjunction with policies that have been adopted and have been implemented well throughout the organization. Um, it's important because the manner um, in which employees interact with someone's off-duty use of drugs in the workplace can result in unsafe conditions, right. can, can result in an employee resenting, for example, if someone is less productive because they are maybe um, feeling the effects of something that they did over the weekend on a Monday, then they are less productive and then that employee has to take on more responsibilities, more work. Um, it, it's very challenging. And performance is affected, attendance is affected, productivity is affected, retention is affected, safety is affected, of course. So not only do you want to train on drug-free workplace place policies, but an, an employer may also want to broaden the conversation into uh, safety, broader safety training and safety awareness for employees. Now, um, what's, what we have seen a rise in jurisdictions who have... Uh, allowed for the legal use of marijuana, whether recreationally or um, medicinally, is reasonable suspicion training, which of course police officers have had for many years. And it's just uh, the ability to recognize the signs of impairment and document them well and take steps to ensure that, that, that the workplace is safe. And again, then steps can be taken later on, disciplinary steps, other other actions can be taken. But this is important, not just in the realm of marijuana, but of course, the opioid crisis that right. we're experiencing right now, because those, again, that may arise from a legal drug that has been ingested, and then abuse occurs. Now, this is important for supervisors, employees, of course, are affected. But Again, supervisors also need to understand that if someone is recovering or struggling, they have rights uh, under the Disabilities Act, the Federal Disabilities Act, and perhaps state acts as well. And it's important to show compassion and to respect a person's privacy, but again, also uh, with the knowledge that performance and discipline are important. Um, but you know, retaining that employee and that employees peers, it's just so much more cost-effective for the organization, and it's the right thing to do. And it's important that that employers really think about drug-free workplace policies, along with other compliance uh, obligations, and just how to package them in a way, how to respect them, how to communicate them in a way that results in just a higher functioning organization, a safer organization, and that also protects employees, um, whether they're struggling or not. Marta, you know, speaking of retention that you just mentioned, as a as a career coach, I, I often see dysfunctional work environments that ignore bad bosses and, and that leader is kept and their high salary with their inappropriate behavior. But then there is a revolving door of talent that, that report up to him or her who leave because they're not happy in that work environment. Any thoughts on why some organizations really ignore those inappropriate uh, leaders and, and managers? Yeah, unfortunately, this is a, a real problem. And as we have seen with some of the scandals 
that that have been in the news lately, the Harvey Weinstein's. Um, uh, I know John Besh down in in New Orleans. They are generally owners or or the CEOs. They're only answerable to a board of directors, for example. So the level of power that they wield internally as well as externally can really intimidate. Um, others within the organization to speak up or speak out. Um, this has also come up in, of course, uh, the cap the state capitals issues that, that we're seeing as well, where we have elected officials, we have a party structure. People are intimidated, and 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 it really does take courage and a, a certain level of, of just risk tolerance to come out and, and really say something. Um, often, though, this isn't the this is the exception often as a supervisor who is engaging in bad behavior is just a rainmaker they're making a lot of money for the organization uh, they can be excellent at diffusing a situation by perhaps taking credit for successes that aren't their own um, downplaying um, anyone who may speak up uh, their their talents or their contributions um, they may be enforcing an oppressive culture, you know, up the chain of command where employees would rather leave than complain. Um, there may not be internal processes such as a hotline that people can call in and um, have the freedom to be anonymous and, and, and still be able to move forward with a complaint. So there are many reasons that this happens, but more often than not, it's just simple inaction um, by someone who has been witnessing inappropriate behavior or just has other things and just never gets to, to doing anything about it. Um, the risks to an organization of allowing this type of, of, of behavior to continue are really high. As you said, you just have this revolving door of really amazing talent, top talent that, that is younger or has you know less experience um, and is just intimidated and they would rather just leave than remain. Um, what we have seen is it just uh, keeping a bad boss around will decrease overall productivity, the quality of performance, um, it, it, it really is important that the situation is addressed and that it's addressed not just by training a supervisor on, you know, offering, for example, sexual harassment training every so often, but really coaching them and counseling them in the moment, providing continuous feedback to these supervisors every single time that something occurs so they can grow and and that way, the response is it incorporates many more processes throughout the organization, the performance management, the training, discipline if needed. And the situation is really addressed well. Marta, I'm, I'm so grateful for your comprehensive uh, wisdom and expertise. And my question to you now is, how does a company get started? For example, should they conduct a, a needs analysis? You know, you mentioned so many different things that were new to me. Where to start? Well, uh, I think it's important to conduct a needs analysis because otherwise, again, you may be targeting the wrong people or the wrong competencies, the wrong learning methods. So... The basic questions to ask is, you know, what do we need and why? 
where is it needed? Who needs to be trained? Um, how much will it cost? And, you know, perhaps conduct a return on an ROI, a return on investment analysis. You know, is this really the best way to um, to address training? So as as a starting point, an employer may need to determine what is the desired business outcome? Um, can we link this desired business outcome to certain employee behavior? Can we focus on the competencies, you know, that, that reinforce that behavior? So, um, for example, external research can be really helpful in terms of what peers are doing in your industry, similarly situated organizations and sized organizations, you know, what are they offering their employees? Uh, because you definitely want to be competitive in, in that, in that way. But I think internal research is also very important. Asking uh, specific supervisors what they need, whether by scheduling a structured interview or conducting an an internal survey, supervisors can identify issues that that are really affecting them. Um, For example, there may be a union organizing drive um, at, at a workplace, you know, maybe for that specific team, for that specific location, um, you know, maintaining a union-free workplace or just a, a refresher on labor law is needed. Um, but, but also, again, we need to think about uh, what other training can complement that as well. Um, so, for example, in a sales-driven organization at, where increasing close rates is the most important we may want to couple that with ethics training and um, customer service training and valuing the customer so that a Wells Fargo situation doesn't occur where employers will really just push to close as much as they can and make as much money as they can. And that was, that, that was what the corporation viewed as most needed. Um, it's important to take a very broad view of this and really think about organizational risk. Um, because that, that's very important. Um, a caveat, though, to asking employees um, what they would like during a training needs analysis is that, um, you know, if you ask about certain needs that you won't be able to meet, that can affect morale. So it's important to be realistic, again, about the ROI and about the cost of a certain training before um, it's, it's offered or communicated to employees. Um, and again, a training needs analysis has to be thought of and, and complement other performance management um, options and, and development options such as coaching, counseling, consulting, so that this is all part of a, of a greater conversation. Marta, you are incredible, and I'm so grateful that you joined me today on Your Working Life. I learned so much, and I know our global audience did as well, and I really appreciate your very practical wisdom about navigating tough scenarios in the workplace and how employees and employers need to be aware and empowered. So I thank you. Thank you so much, Caroline. It's been a pleasure. And of all of you listening, enjoy the show. Subscribe on iTunes or SoundCloud. And even better, leave us a review and let us know what career development issues or themes or questions you have, and we'll address them at a future show. You can find me on Twitter at C. Dowd Higgins, or you can send me an email, caroline at carolinedowdhiggins.com. I'm Caroline Dowd Higgins. Thanks for listening.